This weekend retreat was given at Our Lady of Good Counsel Retreat House in Waverly, Nebraska by Father Justin Wiley, October 4th to 6th, 2019, on the titles of Our Lady. These and other recordings are available at our website, goodcounselretreat.com. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. With these words, we begin our restful retreat, this joy in being together in the Lord, such precious moments together. Thank you for your commitment of your time. God will reward you richly with graces. These words, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, are the words we find inscribed on the base of most statues of the sacred heart of Jesus. And how can we forget that we begin this retreat on a first Friday, this Marian retreat, which we will conduct for the most part on a first Saturday. All these things align, in a sense, to augur for many graces for each of you. This is the feast of St. Francis of Assisi, the poor man, Il Poverello, and he was very devoted to poverty. His uh, friars and the, and the nuns who followed him in St. Clair uh, were effectively uh, beggars, almost hobos for Christ, living in rags. But it's interesting to visit the museum in Assisi to see how Francis spent lavishly on the things of the altar, the most costly golden vestments which the Franciscans wore at Mass, the chalices, the monstrances, the altar linens. He spent lavishly on the King of Kings, even as he lived very simply for himself. He had his priorities right. Unfortunately, St. Francis has become regarded as some sort of an environmentalist or a peacenik, and we seem to remember him only for animals. I wonder why. Perhaps because he tamed the wolf of Gubbio, or maybe because he wrote the Canticle of Creatures, the worst first work in the Italian language. In actual fact, at a time when all religious orders were vegetarian, St. Francis ordered his followers to slaughter animals and to eat their meat. So I'm not sure if the vegans will adopt him for their own. Francis, for the most part, about 80-something percent of his writings and speakings had to do with reverence for the Most Holy Sacrament, reverence for the Mass, reverence for the liturgy. He is, uh, he is a saint par excellence about the supreme and august participation that we have in the things of heaven already while on earth. Of course, he was a peaceful man, but not that sort of peace which is divorced from truth, which is no peace at all. Francis could never leave the truth, who is a person, not a notion. Jesus, who said, I am the truth. And so, for the sake of peace, he marched across the battlefield between the Crusaders and the, and the uh, Muslims in Egypt, and he confronted the court of the Muslim caliphate, and he ordered them to convert to the gospel and become Christians. He escaped with his life only because they understood that here was a man of principle who had come out of charity, because it is charity which brings the truth which will save souls for eternity, rather than deny them that truth to save your own hide. To this day, the Franciscans are the custodians of the Holy Land. At the beginning of Francis's vocation, he was asked by the crucifix in the chapel of St. Damien, a crumbling down country chapel, Francis, rebuild my church. He took him literally and with his own hands rebuilt that little chapel, but our Lord intended the Franciscan movement to rebuild the entire church. And to this day, it is the largest order of, of the various forms of friars and monks. Uh, 
Francis himself bore the signs of Christ crucified in his body as one of the many stigmatics in the history of the church, just like his follower, Padre Pio, whom we celebrated just a week ago. But enough about that. We're here to talk about Mary, and this is a Marian retreat. Now, non-Catholics find very bewildering our devotion to the Blessed Mother of the Lord. And they find especially bewildering the many, many titles by which we never cease to serenade her, to lavish our affection and our gratitude upon her. Little do they know we could never come anywhere near, close, to lavishing as much love and appreciation on her as does her divine Son, on earth and even as he crowns her Queen of Heaven. Forty-four are the titles by which she is serenaded in the most popular litany of Loreto, a copy of which I've left on the piano in the first side chapel. But then again, I found another 208 titles by which the church unofficially styles Mary, which are not found in the litany of Loreto. It is not an exhaustive list. Love knows no limits. And we can tell a lot about the love of a person from the little love names that they call one another. During this retreat, I hope to lift just a few of these lovely titles from the Litany of Loretta, one at a time, which I personally have found so helpful for my own delving into a deeper theological appreciation of the mystery of Mary. I've been inspired in this choice by the occasional sermons of Blessed John Henry Newman. We'll call him Blessed for only one more week because uh, on October 13, Cardinal Newman will be canonized a saint at long last, and our own dear bishop is there to witness this in Rome. Cardinal Newman catechized the faithful in Mariology by preaching every day during the Marian month of May on a different title by which Our Lady is known in the Litany of Loreto. In his own arrangement, he divides the titles in terms of the joyful mysteries, the sorrowful mysteries, and the glorious mysteries of the Most Holy Rosary. And he assigns to each of these not ten aves, but seven titles, which he found most explained the participation of Our Lady in these mysteries of the work of our redemption. Um, I propose making a, a slightly different approach. Rather than focusing on the mysteries of the rosary during this retreat, I will alight on certain titles of Our Lady which explain more deeply the four main Marian dogmas of the Church. Her perpetual virginity, her divine maternity, her queenship in the Assumption, and her divine predilection in the Immaculate Conception. We've all noticed how these titles of Our Lady in the Litany of Loreto appear to be grouped together according to the titles Virgin and Mother and Queen and then special titles by which her predilection in the Immaculate Conception is arranged. Ten times she is called Mother. Mater Christi, Mater Divine Grazie, Mater Purissima, Mater Castissima, Mater Inviolata, Mater Intemerata, Mater Amabilis, Mater Admirabilis, Mater Creatoris, and Mater Salvatoris. 
And all these are related, of course, to the great title Sancta Dei Genetrix, the most holy uh, mother of God. So, 11 for the maternity of Mary. Six times she is called a virgin. Virgo prudentissima, virgo veneranda, virgo predicanda, virgo potens, virgo clemens, virgo fidelis. And all of these are related to her earlier title, Sancta Virgo Virginum, the most holy virgin of virgins. So seven for her virginity. Nine times she is called queen. Regina Angelorum, Regina Patriarcarum, Regina Profetarum, Regina Apostolorum, Regina Martyrum, Regina Confessorum, Regina Virginum, Regina Sanctorum Omnium, et, and Regina Sine Labe Concepta. Seventeen special titles exist, starting with Santa Maria, which is more than simply her name, it is her great title. And they follow Speculum Justitiae, Sede Sapientia, Causa Nostra Letizia, Rosa Mystica, Domus Aurea, Janua Celi, Stella Matutina, Salus Infirmorum, Refugium Peccatorum, Consolatrix Afflixorum, Auxilium Christianorum. Three times she is called a vessel, vas spirituale, vas honorabile, and vas insigne devotionis. And twice she is called a tower, Turis Davidica and Turis Eburnia, bringing this to a total, if you were counting, of 44. Now, if things go according to plan, I will try to highlight at least three of each of these titles for the four main Marian dogmas, which will bring us to a total of 12 titles, by which I hope for us to offer by this retreat a homage of 12 stars with which we can crown our beloved mother by our devotions. As an aside, I would like to suggest, um, perhaps, um, well, you can come back to me, uh, think about this for maybe our morning prayer, um, that we consider adopting uh, a devotion which is a much forgotten practice in the church. It used to be the daily custom of many saints. I believe it was championed by St. John Birchman's. It's called the Chaplet of the Crown of Twelve Stars. It's found in the Rakota, where so many of our devotions are found. And in this devotion, twelve Hail Marys are addressed to the Madonna, four each under a different aspect of the Trinitarian dimension. So four with respect to the Father, four with respect to the Son, and four with respect to the Holy Spirit, each preceded by an Our Father and followed by a Gloria. And, um, and I leave copies of that also on the piano in the first side chapel at the uh, epistle side. As a, another aside, I would like to leave here in the chapel for your perusal, for the perusal of the other retreatants too. I'd like to see it. Uh, a personal treasure, so I'm hoping it doesn't disappear. It was given to me by a holy nun many years ago, and it's very much enriched my own devotion to the Blessed Mother under her titles in the Litany of Loreto. It's a booklet of beautiful etchings by which an artist, Antonio Marazzo, has rendered a pictorial depiction of each of her titles. And if you look closely at the different aspects of each of the pictures, you can see his deep appreciation for the theology of each of the titles in that, in that litany. This evening, uh, 
It's also my intention uh, to whet your appetite a little, to toy a little with a title you won't find in any list of titles of Our Lady, but one which just arises from my own fervid imagination. And you can, I'm sure, do the same. Here goes. With the exception of the spurious secrets of the dark arts of alchemy, few things have exercised the Western imagination more than the question about the whereabouts of the so-called Holy Grail. From T.S. Eliot to Umberto Eco, from Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones to last year's television series Nightfall, the ever-elusive quest for the Holy Grail has exercised imaginations for many centuries. Perhaps for more than a millennium, it has inspired art and literature and a plethora of conspiracy theories involving the Merovingian kings of France, the Cathars, who were heretics, the Knights Templar, and even a suspected secret order, the Priory of Zion. It has been imagined and reimagined so many times to represent so many things, including, in National Socialist times, a hypothetical pure Aryan religion suppressed by Christianity. The Nazis even commissioned a special postage stamp promoting this theory of the Holy Grail, which is today a favorite among stamp collectors. By far, the most popular law considers the Holy Grail to be the rarest of treasures. The Grail is a cup or a chalice, maybe Joseph of Arimathea's, in which was kept the blood of Christ, our Savior, either gathered from the cross or used at the Last Supper. Did the Arimathean evangelize England and establish the ancient Abbey of Glastonbury? No, but the theory has inspired countless archaeological digs around the supposed site. It was a favorite theme, perhaps the favorite, of literature concerning itself with King Edward and the Knights of the Round Table, the legend of the so-called Fisher King. And all this should long ago have become a moot issue because archaeologists today concur that the cup used by our Lord at the Last Supper most likely was preserved by the church through the centuries and is, on a preponderance of probabilities, the two-handled chalice preserved at Valencia in Spain, where Pope Benedict celebrated Mass with it during his apostolic voyage there some years ago for World Youth Day. But fiction has very little need for facts. A newish theory, I can't find any evidence of it earlier than the 1970s, was championed by a dishonest writer from this country, Dan Brown, whose novels, masquerading as nonfiction, were all the rage when I was a seminarian in Rome. So relentless was the interrogation I faced as a seminarian over Dan Brown's prolific writings that we even had courses in Rome on how to refute its spurious claims. Brown resurrected in this century a theory that the Holy Grail, or San Graal, was in fact an intentionally mispronounced code for sang real, not holy chalice, but royal blood. According to this theory, the quest for the treasure was a quest not for a cup at all, not a cup which held Christ's blood, but rather a person 
in whom the bloodline of Christ had been passed along. In other words, the Holy Grail being that which contains the lifeblood of the God who became man is not a goblet at all, but rather a person. He or she who today continues the bloodline of Jesus Christ. This is to say, according to this theory, that the grail is not an object, but a person. The person is the vessel. And this spawned, in Brown's disordered and florid imagination, the crass theory that the Savior must have had an offspring, that he had established a a dynasty, but that the powers of the church and the crown had conspired together to snuff it out wherever it had gone. Where had it gone? Had it gone to France and become the Merovingians? Had it gone further east and become the Cathars? Was it held prisoner in the dungeons of the Knights Templar? The possibilities were endless and salacious and sold books by the millions. Never mind that all this is based on fiction. I really don't understand Dan Brown. He is not interested in Christianity, and yet he has devoted his life and his attentions to a treasure associated with the Christ. I'm no fan of the author, but I think he got one thing absolutely right. He's absolutely right about this. The grail is not an object. It is a subject. It is a person. The vessel is a person. But whereas Brown has a one-directional mind only, looking for progeny where there is none, in my own mind, the quest is to make, be made in the other direction altogether. We are to look for that vessel upstream. Only one generation upstream, it turns out. Look no further than the blessed maid of Nazareth in your quest for the Holy Grail. Now why do I go on all about this in this, in this first talk? Carol Hauslander writes in her beautiful work, The Read of God, that it is the purpose for which something is made that decides the material that is to be used. The chalice is made of pure gold because it must contain the blood of Christ. The chalice doesn't grow like the flower it represents. Gold must be gathered from the water and mud or hewn from the rock. It must be beaten by countless little blows that give the chalice of sacrifice its fitting beauty It's possible to make a candle with very little wax and a lot of fat, but a candle made from pure wax is more useful and more fitting. And the church insists that the candles on the altar be made of pure wax, the wax of the soft, dark bees, a beautiful natural material. It reminds us of the days of warm sun, the droning of bees, the summer in flower. The tender ivory color has its own beauty and a kind of an affinity with the white linens and the unleavened bread, in every way a fitting material to bear a light, and by light it is made more lovely. Human nature is the material which God has made for the fulfilling of his will within us. And although human nature is something we all share, and although we each have the same purpose of knowing and loving and serving God, we do not all achieve that purpose in the same way. How true this is, in the first place, of the Immaculate Virgin chosen to be the Mother of God. What a vessel he fashioned for his purpose. As Hauslander writes, 
It is in Our Lady that God fell in love with humanity. Facts aside, Dan Brown's is a thesis I can subscribe to. A chalice may contain blood if it is poured into it, yes, but it is poured into it first from the proper vessel for human blood, which is a human person. Mary is present at every Mass in the highly symbolic and suggestive shape of the chalice. Here she is the house of gold, the Dormus Aurea, as well as the flower of the enclosed garden, the Rosa Mystica, the mystical rose, the lily of the valley. The chalice is intentionally shaped like a lily on account of the fleur-de-lis serving as the immemorial symbol of the Blessed Virgin. Into the chalice of the Mass at the offertory is poured a specific quantity of wine known in primitive Jewish anatomy as Lebensblut, or life's blood, which is the quantity of blood shed in the moment that a person dies. In other words, not all the blood shed by Christ on the cross, but only that final bleeding which extinguished the life of the victim, which is considered as being the quantity of blood contained within the heart itself, the last blood shed with the last beat of the heart was considered as consigning the victim's life itself. Now thought of in these terms, the sacred heart of Jesus then is the chalice or the vessel which contains his Lebensblut or life's blood. But in another deeper or antecedent sense, what we can take from Dan Brown's reasoning, since in every good lie there must be elements of the truth, it's this, that it is Mary herself who gives to the Christ his life, his blood. He gets his heart, like he gets his blood, from her heart, her Lebensblut, her yes, her offering, her consignment. Mary, then, is the very first chalice of offering. She is the elusive Holy Grail. When she not only provides the blood which will be his in his humanity, but she also contains it first as a chalice in her virginal womb. I've always thought, therefore, of Mary as, in a sense, being priestly. And on my priestly ordination invitation, I pictured her lifting up her broken son's body in Michelangelo's Pieta, over which I inscribed the words, Peripsum et cum ipso et in ipso, through him and with him and in him. This is her offering. And in this, Our Lady is no mere biological progenitor, as Dan Brown would have it, but rather the archetype or icon of how every Christian must model themselves to be vessels of the precious lifeblood which you receive in Holy Communion. Each of us, if we are to become another Christ, which is what a Christian is, must first become another Mary. We must receive within the chalice of our souls the secret of his blood type and DNA. And in turn, like Mary, confect the reality of our incarnate God in our world today, bringing forth, as it were, in a new birth, incarnating the Savior of the world by our thoughts first, and then by our words 
and even by our silences, and finally, by our every action, our every gesture. 